And I said to the medic who kind of like helped me up, I said, I think I broke my jaw. And she was kind of like, well, we don't know that yet. And I said, well, my teeth, one part of my teeth are over here and the other part's over here. So I'm like, I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Welcome everyone to Stand Up Pedal Action. Today in house, in the blanket fort, we have Stephanie Search, a.k.a. Robbie Spokes. Yes. <laughs> um, she, Robbie, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Yep. Yes, yes. <laughs> she has been uh, a pretty pivotal member of the cycling community in Colorado Springs for a little while now. And also, as we're discovering, has a pretty rich background of some BMX, some pro racing, um, is a coach now. And also uh, helps with Wimba here in town and just has a, a very deep passion for our community in a lot of different ways. And so we are so thankful and excited to have you here today. And to start things off, uh, when was the first time you hopped on a bicycle? Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, first time I hopped on a bicycle um, it was probably about, actually, I, I know exactly when it was. I was four years old. My mom bought me a um, a little um, blue 16-inch bike with a plastic seat at a yard sale for $5. Nice. And, <laughs> that officially yeah, makes yeah. you the cheapest first bike story we've had on the show. Say, yeah. yeah. Oh, I hope I get an award for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, back then, of course, you know, I'm dating myself. Um, but, like, you know, we didn't have Strider bikes or anything like that. You just mm-hmm. got, like, hand-me-down bikes or you got a bike at a yard sale with, with fenders and a banana seat or whatever. And you learned how to ride by wearing no helmet and going down like a small incline in your backyard and hopefully not injuring yourself. So, (laughs) you know, I was a child of, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, and that's how we all learned how to ride. Um, so yeah, so my mom bought me this bike and, uh, and you know, it's so funny. She just said this to me like not too long ago. She said, um, she was like, you know, you were just born to ride a bike. And she said, all the other kids in the neighborhood, they, you know, they all had training wheels and everything. And our, our neighbor, you know, their, her mom, I guess, asked my mom, like, oh, are you going to get training wheels for her? And she's like, no, she already knows how to ride. She's like, she's like, literally, like, you just jumped on this bike and she's like, you just took off. And that was it. And it sounds kind of funny and cliche, but I just started laughing when I heard that because it really was. That was the beginning of, of a lifetime of riding. And 40 years later, you know, I'm 44. Mm-hmm. And it's like. I'm still riding as much as I did, you know, when I was, when I was eight or when I was 18 or when I was 30 or, you know, now in my forties. So, so my mom was absolutely right. That was the beginning and it never stopped. That is awesome. A pretty lifelong love there. Uh, and where, where was this? So I grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, which is in Eastern Pennsylvania, um, about an hour and a half North of Philadelphia. And, um, I spent my whole life, my whole life in Pennsylvania, um, basically until I moved to, to Colorado 10 years ago. And so those of us, I too am in my forties. I just turned 41. Uh, well, I'm about to turn 42 welcome, actually. Welcome to the club. Oh, yeah. Thank oh. you. Yeah. So, not so much welcome anymore. I've been, I've been hanging out in the corner, not telling anybody that I'm here. That's yeah. what that is. Josh, you'll be next. <laughs> yeah. He'll, he'll get there eventually. Yeah. Um, but those of us who are of that age, cycling looked very different and the state of trails and competitions and everything was way different when we were kids. So what was the state of, we'll say, we'll just go ahead and start with BMX when you were a kid. 
Yeah. So, no, I think that's a great observation. You know, one of the one of the wonderful things about, you know, my life in cycling is that I've had I've really just had this, you know, this wealth of experience, you know, seeing how, you know, cycling itself has evolved and where it's come from and, you know, where it's headed and having the opportunity to be a part of all of that. And really, you know, to answer your question, I think at that time, you know, cycling or riding bikes, let's not even use the word cycling, riding bikes is just inherently part of um, your life as a kid, your life as a kind of rural, suburban, you know, kind of small town kid is that you got a bike and you learned how to ride it. And there was, you know, you just rode around the neighborhood and you made little jumps and you'd, yeah. you know, <laughs> made, you know, you took bricks and stacked a little piece of plywood and you, you know, you made a little ramp, you know, and, until the neighbor came out and said, take that down. What are you doing? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, all those kind of experiences, it sounds very nostalgic, but really like, that was just part of the fabric of, you know, being a child at that at that time or in, in that era, at least in our neighborhood. I mean, even if you didn't like hardcore ride bikes, you had a bike and you rode around and you yeah. went to your friend's houses and you, you know, um, you did all that. And then I think it evolved into, you know, for me anyway, like I was just in love with bikes so much that I would like, I was seven years old and I begged my dad, I was like, dad. I, I saw this, this BMX magazine and I showed it to, I was like, I, yes. I want to do this, you know, can I have a BMX bike? I mm -hmm. mean, at that time it's like, you didn't even know, like, you know, you didn't even know what that was, but, um, there was a, some, some attraction about that. And then I remember we went to the BMX track. There was, there was a, like a county fair at the time that happened every summer. And we actually, we went to the county fair and there just happened to be a BMX race there. Okay. There happened to be a track there. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize, I thought there was only like a race like once a year, like when the fair was there. And then I found out, you know, that there was races there like every week. You're like, what? And I was like, what? You do this all the time? You're like mind blown, you oh. know? And I was like, dad, we got it. I was like, we got it. You know, we got to go. We have to, I want to do this. And then, mm -hmm. you know, being a, you know, a father to a, you know, a very um, determined you know, then seven and a half year old or eight year old, um, was probably difficult, you know, for him. I don't think he envisioned his daughter, <laughs> you know, wanting to go out and, you know, ride, uh, ride and do this ride BMX and do the sport he didn't know anything about. But luckily he was very supportive. And, uh, yeah, after about three months of begging him, um, he, he took me to the track and, you know, and that was it. Like literally like that was, I started racing when I was eight years old in 1986 and, um, yeah. And, and really never, you know, like I was saying uh, earlier, like really like never stopped. That was the beginning of, of what I consider like a life in, in bicycling. So many of the guests we have in the show have a first race story that is just a debacle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so my first race story, actually, uh, I ended up, I, I ended up, um, so in BMX, you raced you know, if there's only a couple of you in your group, you raced what we call like motos, you raced three motos and they kind of use like an Olympic sort of point system where you, you know, in the lowest points, basically after those three motos, that's who wins the race. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I went out and I was racing this, you know, this other, this other girl, there's only like two or three of us in our group. And I yeah. won, I, I remember I was coming down the finish line and I won my first ever moto. I elbowed Ooh. her out like in a sprint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the second moto she won. And then, so then the, when I came up for the third mode, I was like, I got to beat this girl. You know, mm -hmm. I got to beat her, you know, cause I want to win, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then I, uh, I probably got a little too over my head, you know, on the second straight set of doubles and, you know, and ended up crashing. I was okay, oh. you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, but that's, that's my first race story. So I still okay. ended up 
with a really cool second place trophy. And back then, trophies were a big deal. They were actually made out of marble. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, like actual metal. And I still have that trophy in my house to this day. And it is the only award I've wow. ever taken to every place I've lived in, That's in my adult life. Yeah. So mm. it still sits on my on my shelf um, with all my other, you know, more notable like awards <laughs> over the years. So very special. That's where it all began. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yep. <clears throat> where did it go from there? Yeah. So um, it really grew like very organically. I know you asked earlier, um, Jason, if, mm-hmm. you know, how BMX was at that time. And I think there's a lot of distinctive differences, you know, at that time in BMX racing and, you know, the late 80s um, to, you know, youth sports now. And I think the biggest difference is probably BMX is very grassroots. And, and I think that was part of the attraction. It was very family oriented um, and, uh, and, you know, it was very, um, it was not as competitive as it was, uh, kind of community building, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting as kind of a topic, um, you know, even in, even in my, in my childhood that was very attractive about it. You know, we traveled around, um, it went from, you know, just racing at our local track at the time, even in Pennsylvania, there was probably 10 or 12 different tracks that you could go to, um, on any given, you know, on any, any given, um, weekend to race. And then it progressed to racing, like what we called the state series, We'd go to the different tracks and you compete for the state championship and the overall, you know, state championship. And, um, and then from there, really my interest just, uh, just kept going and just, well, I wanted to compete at the national level. I started doing that when I was 11. And then, um, from there, you know, as I got older and stuck with the sport and really progressed, I became, you know, kind of one of the top racers in my amateur age group. And then by the time I was 16, um, they had reintroduced, um, a, basically like a women's pro class mm-hmm. or they were reintroducing it at the uh the time that i was eligible to compete in it which was when i was about 16 or 17 now you say reintroducing yeah. implying it had been there and then went away yeah exactly so it's my understanding that kind of when i was young when i was like mm-hmm. maybe even pre-dating when i raced there was a women's pro class just like there was a men's pro class and i guess for whatever reason maybe there wasn't an interest there or not enough women were involved they had um, it had become dormant basically for a while. Okay. And then with this new group of, of girls that I was a part of, you know, like we were basically like, Hey, we're on par, you know, with, you know, with the men at our same, you know, kind mm-hmm. of skill level. And I think there, there just was a, you know, a renewed sort of incentive to give women a, a pro class. And at that time too, um, this was really, and this is interesting cause I haven't really had the opportunity to share this even with a lot of my friends is that was really when BMX was in the infancy of going into the Olympics. So Mm. in order for for BMX to be recognized, um, at the time, the organization that was the the governing body was the National Bicycle League at that time. Um, They started to institute some steps in place so that BMX can sort of be recognized by the UCI and with all Mm -hmm. um, all the other disciplines of cycling. Yeah. And reinstituting the the professional women's um, category was, I think, a step. I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming was a, sort of also a step, you know, in that in that same process. And I feel um, I feel really like honored to when I think about it to be involved in some of those early sort of prerequisite, um, you know, sort of those early stages of you know BMX becoming an eventual Olympic sport. Like we were the first groups, um, men and women, you know 
of that era in the late 90s um, to race, to have World Cups mm -hmm. and to be recognized like mm. by the UCI, you know, as an affiliate and as, you know, you know, classified sort of professional racers at that time. So that's that's always been um, that's always been like a good memory for me to have, you know, even though I've been distanced a little bit from BMX nowadays, um, that that's definitely definitely has been um, that was a really like those years were just a great experience for me. So what were those years like? What, like, so we got you to 16. Yeah. <laughs> and then I derailed you a moment ago. Oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I derailed it. Um, were you, so you went pro at that point? Or? Yeah, so basically when, at that time, when you turned 16, you know, when you turned 16, you basically were eligible, ma ma male or female, mm -hmm. to enter into like basically like the professional classes. Um, and the men had two different divisions and then the women just had one. So yeah, when you were 16 or 17, you could, you know, you could elect to become, to become a pro racer basically. Yeah. yeah so then, um, I and was race. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. So at this point, I mean, obviously you wouldn't have gotten to the state level and then to the national level if you weren't winning or at least on the podium or right there in the hunt. How did that go once you hit that national level? Were you still competitive at that? stage yeah yeah absolutely as an amateur and you know it's um it's it definitely was it's a it's a different kind of culture than i think racing is now um you know i was just thinking about this because i had a conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago about this you know back then there was a lot of just internal sort of incentives to progress in your racing and if you wanted to be you know if you wanted to race nationals and you wanted to go to those things like you really like had to practice and you really had to you, know, you really had to, to, it's funny to say this, but even as like an 11 or 12 year old, you did it for enjoyment, but you also had this goal. You saw those pros in the magazines and you saw like, you know, the older riders at your track and you're like, I want to be like them, Yeah. you know? And there was this more of like this firsthand sort of modeling, mm -hmm. I think. And for me, it, it was always, you know, that I wanted to, I wanted to be like those people in the magazines. Like, that's <laughs> awesome. You know? Yeah. So I think, um, and there was so, that was in when BMX racing was kind of in its heyday, honestly. So there was like, I mean, you know, as like a 12 or 13 year old girl sometimes, I mean, we'd have like, you know, dozens of riders like at our Grand Nationals, you know, so it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was just, a, there was a lot of riders and you got rewarded, I think, very, um, you kind of got rewarded, I feel like more strategically, you know, when you won like third place or you won second place or first place. I mean, it was like really meant something, mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, there wasn't like a million different categories. There wasn't like you were just 10 and 11 and you raced. And if you won, you won. Did you come through first? Then you win. Yeah. And so there wasn't like, you know, there wasn't as many different categories. There wasn't as many um, options to win. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but when you, when you won an award, it like really meant something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, yeah. So just to get back to your original question, I sort of progressed like through the ranks, you know, at an amateur level, I wouldn't say I was ever like the number one person or whatever, you know, as an amateur, but I was definitely, by the time I got to be, you know, 15, 15 years old, which is when I got my first like factory sponsorship, I was definitely like one of the top people like in my group, Yeah. you know, who was and, that sponsorship with? Um, it was actually with a team um, from California and they were called Primo Racing. Okay. Yeah. And they made frames, parts, new components. And that was like my first, um, like real legit, like factory sponsor. That's Did cool. you have a freak out moment when that happened? You're like, wait a minute. Uh, this is a big step towards being one of those people in the magazines. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it was a freak out moment, but it was definitely like I had been, 
you know, I had been racing around Pennsylvania and we, you know, racing at that time, even though there was a lot of people racing, you kind of became, you know, you became very familiar with other, you know, your peers that lived in different states and the people you raced against, you, you race against them every weekend. Mm-hmm. And so I was very like known, you know, in our circle of the, the East coast, let's say in the Northeast where we raced a lot. Um, and I was on like a little like local, like state team, um, which was, which was wonderful. And I had, you know, I had these great, you know, great pals on that. And then when I was approached by like a bigger team, like it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely like, whoa, like this is super cool. Like, you yeah. know, it's super cool to say like, well, I'm riding for like, you know, back then we, we call a factory team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And that was, um, yeah, it was definitely, it was super cool. And it always took place sort of at the end of the season. Our season ended in September at that time. So you'd always kind of, you'd have these people, you know, you'd have kind of the negotiations, let's say, you know, after, after that, like, you know, leading up until the next season. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get the impression that BMX was kind of the laser focus through this time period. Did you ride other kinds of bikes too? So, or was it- yeah. So no, it's interesting that you ask. So I would, I would say it was definitely my, I mean, it's funny. I, when I, when I, over the years, you know, especially since I've been in Colorado, you know, and haven't been racing for a long time you know, I'd say over the years, like, oh, I used to race BMX. And someone would say, oh, yeah, 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 I used to do that. And, you know, I kind of like, you know, think in my head, like, they probably raced like maybe one or two times in their life, right. you know, not to just, just diminish that. But I, I was always thinking, I don't, I don't think even my friends like, really understand like what that meant. I mean, I was racing and we all were, it wasn't just me. I was racing like, 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 not exaggerating, probably like between 40 and 45 weekends a year. Wow. And, oh yeah, my gosh. yeah. I mean, it was like literally like by the time I was kind of, you know, 18, 19, 20, like those years, I always felt were like sort of my, my main years of like racing pro. I mean, I was like, eat, that's all you did was you ate, slept and breathed BMX. And it was like, it's funny. There's this like quote in like some skateboarding movie about like, it's like summer vacation all year long. And that was exactly like what it was. I yeah, mean, it wow. was like, that's so cool. Just traveling, racing, after the race, hanging out after the race going, Oh, let's go find the dirt jumps, you know, and doing that and hanging out and just being in this culture of you're young and you're having fun and you're touring around the country, you know, in a van and like, you know, living out of your backpack. I mean, it was the life, like it was like, yeah. you're living the dream, you know? And, and, and it's, it's, it's so hard, interesting because I feel, I feel so blessed that I had that experience, you know, in yeah. my life, because it's something that, you know, I mean, it's something that a lot of people just don't get to experience and to be paid for something that to you is just this fun thing that you're doing and to get to go to races and just like have all these laughs and, you know, just to be young and travel around and do that. It was, it was awesome. I, I knew going into this that you had a fair amount of experience in the, in the biking realm, but uh, I'm, I'm just doing the math in my head and that's, that's got to be like in the thousands of races, not in yeah. Oh, that's, absolutely. Yeah. If I could, wild. It, I know it is kind of crazy when I think about it. If I combine like all the races I've done in my life since I was eight years old, including all the BMX races we're talking about racing, like, and those are just national races. Like during the week we'd go to like local races and we'd yeah, race. Yeah. And, and even after that, you know, I stayed, I stayed involved in BMX. I would race like local races occasionally. And then, then transcending into mountain biking, like, I don't even know, honestly, how many races I've done. It's in the, it's probably in the thousands. Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know know, it's so crazy. And that's, and that's not even like, 
when I think those are just races, like I'm not even, those aren't even like rides. Yeah. Not <laughs> days know? on the bike. Yeah. 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 Okay. So a question about that, you know, like UCI mountain bike world cup, six yeah. races a year. Uh, most downhill series are in barely into the double digits of weekends a year. 40 to 45 weekends a year that you're racing yeah how even at 18 and 19 when everyone is bulletproof and nobody gets injured (laughs) how did you manage that season after season yeah so that's a good question i think one of the differences is um you know in bmx you know every event and you know those people who aren't familiar with bmx um, would find this striking but you know bmx races are only about 30 to 40 seconds long you know right so you think about, you know, you're racing and at, at the time, you know, the races were structured in, in a weekend structure. So you'd have a race on Saturday and a separate race on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So you'd have two races a weekend. And during that time, um, you're really only racing one, two, three. You'd have three motos, maybe a quarterfinal, a semifinal, and then a final. So you're racing six laps each day. So you're racing 12 laps a day. And granted, they're full on sprints and they're really taxing. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to get back to that. But I think, um, you know, I think obviously, you know, like you just touched on it, you know, I won't deny this, you know, when you're younger, yeah, you're, you're a little bit more, um, you know, unfazed by that stuff. But I think, um, I think the, the short duration of the race was probably the pivotal factor. Now, now being in, you know, being on the other side of the spectrum, you know, throughout the part of, you know, my twenties and thirties and now forties, um, in doing endurance mountain bike racing, there's no way I could do a 50 mile endurance mountain bike race, even when mm-hmm. I was 20 every weekend, you know, yeah. for 40 weekends a year. So I think it's, you know, shorter races, less intense, you know, more intensity, shorter races, but much shorter duration of your effort. I think that allows for a quicker recovery. How did you manage to keep up that pace without ending up in a giant pile of tires and handlebars? Because every BMX race I've ever seen, People go down. Yeah. Oh, sh- yeah, yeah. I shoot. I, I have definitely, I am not going to say I've been unscathed. I've had my fair share of crashes. Um, my most, you know, I knock on wood, wood though, and I will knock on this table here. Um, I've had, you know, I've had, um, I've been really fortunate in my whole cycling life. I've never had a, what I would consider, um, you know, a real, uh, I shouldn't say serious. I've had some serious crashes, but you know, I haven't had the, you know, the types of crashes that put me out for months at a time. Um, I did my, my most serious crash when I was 17 years old, it was at our national championships or we called our grand nationals. Um, there was at the time, a there was like almost like an extra race before the grand nationals was called the U S open. Um, that would be on the Friday before, before, and I raced that and I fell in one of my semifinals and I crashed right on my face in the last straight oh. and I broke my jaw. Oh. And, yeah. So, yeah. So out of all my racing, even into mountain biking, that has always, that has been my most severe injury I've ever had. Um, and, uh, yeah, I fell right on my face and I'll never forget the medics rushed out on the track and a couple of my teammates rushed out on the track. And, and I said, to the medic who kind of like helped me up, I said, I think I broke my jaw. And she was kind of like, well, we don't know that yet. And I said, well, my teeth, one part of my teeth are over here and the other part's over here. So I'm like, I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like my teeth like like didn't line up, you know, and, uh, uh and then, yeah, so then it was, you know, we were in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. And, um, and, uh, you know, my father took me to the emergency room or, and I had to have surgery and everything. That was definitely like the most serious, um, serious injury I've ever had. And luckily 
My smile's pretty good. Yeah, you're doing fine. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I had 20 stitches in my chin, um, but you can hardly see it now. So, um, okay. Yeah. So there's lots of things that you can think about in any particular cycling discipline that if you describe the the very description of it is cringeworthy beyond belief. The one in BMX that gets me is thinking about shorting a double. Yeah. And just putting your front tire straight into it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that, are there some like horrible memories like flashing before your eyes right now as I say that? Or yeah, not as many horrible memories with that, but definitely I think, um, and even nowadays, sometimes when I think about it or I see it, watch a video of myself like racing, I mean, you know, I, I kind of laugh at, at this, but you know, it's funny. We, you know, we, we look at, you know, even not, and even I nowadays, you know, when I'm out on the mountain bike trail and I get a little air off of something like, man, mm-hmm. like I got rad, you know, yeah, I get a little like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, gosh, like. When you are like racing BMX at that level, I mean, we're talking like 20 foot gaps, you know, yeah. you're jumping and you're uh-huh. not jumping one and like taking a break. You're jumping them in like succession uh-huh. <laughs> and you're jumping on them with like two other people like right next to you. And I mean, it's so funny even for me nowadays to wrap my head around that sometimes because it was so like it's so far from anything I do right now. I mean, occasionally, yeah, I'll go out and get rad, but like, you know, <laughs> like, I'm not jumping like 20 foot gaps anymore. And I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, so I do have, you know, I, you know, obviously like, um, you know, there's some crashes, you know, when you're going at a high rate of speed, you mm-hmm. know, um, so I'm not going to say it's, you know, without its injuries and things like that. Um, but I, I had to, I have to say it, you know, I, I raced for, you know, 14 years and, and had that one, you know, crash and broke my jaw. And really, like, the majority of, of crashes, the majority of things, that, injuries that people that occur in BMX really are the bumps and bruises variety, you know? That's, I mean, that's impressive to hear because yeah. it doesn't seem like that watching. But yeah. So what do you attribute that to? Were you a careful racer? Like, were you the careful calculating, I know where I need to be and I'm just going to hit my pace to get over these the way I know how? Or were you just... I'm going to get in front of everybody so they (laughs) can't hit me. You know, I think it's a combination of things. I also feel like this is important for me to emphasize too, to anybody, any parent, you know, who's, who's, you know, kind of grooming their kid to, you know, in, in cycling or their kid shows an interest in cycling. One of the things that BMX teaches above, above everything else, I, I would venture to say is really this, all the skills necessary that to compete in any other discipline or to, Mm. or to, to, I should say, you know, excel in any other discipline you know, the balance, the, you know, how to pick your front wheel up, how to, you know, we, we talk about, you know, riding pump tracks and things like that, how to you know move your bike and your body around. And to answer your question, I think that, you know, when you start young and you start to have that experience on the track, you really learn all those balance points really quickly and you progress in accordance with them. Okay. So, you know, you're, you know, your kind of limits, you're not, mm-hmm. you know, you're, there's lots of 10 year olds that can go out and they can jump huge sets of doubles, like way better than many adults can, mm-hmm. but they've, they've already had three years of riding that type of terrain under their belt. And that's, you know, that kind of what guides those, them to it. I think you, you, you develop a sense of bike body awareness and bike mm-hmm. obstacle awareness, <laughs> you know, that you <laughs> realize important. how much speed I have to have, what do I have to do to approach this lip, you know, um, you know, how, you know, how much do I have to pull up, you know, on my front handlebars to get over this, you know, how much, you know, how do I have to move through this turn? You re- you learn all those things progressively and you, you know, you go through your, um, you know, you go through your own levels and your own competitiveness, you know, in accordance with that. Yeah. So we've got you that 18, 19 years old. 
we've got you living the dream. Essentially, trying, essentially to, trying to live or at the least dream. From recollection. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, that's all that matters. Yeah. Is it's the dream now. Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> how long did you get to stay at the zenith like that? You know, I'm I'm glad that you asked that. Probably shorter than I would have liked, quite okay. honestly. And that that has largely to do with you know maybe another topic that will that mm -hmm. we'll touch on shortly is, um, is my own uh you know my own kind of well being and state of mind at the time. I I that was. Right when, you know, I was racing um, at those pivotal years, 18, 19, 20, I was also struggling with a lot of, you know, what I would later, what would later come to fruition as some severe depression, severe anxiety. Um, and that, that in, in the end really is what cut my um, sort of the glory days of my BMX racing career short. Because within a year, I went from being one of the top racers, like in my class, um, to like barely racing and basically essentially hanging on my bike and not looking at it for like a year. So, okay. So what yeah. you just said in one sentence <laughs> sounds yeah. like a really big story. Oh yeah. In, in yeah. a way. So how does that happen? Um, I think it was a, I think it was a slow transition that was sort of like, I think it was something that was sort of like bubbling up for many, many years. You know, I think, um, if you, you know, for, if we transition now to, mm -hmm. you know, to the, the focus of, um, you know, the part focus of this, of this uh, interview with, with mental health, I think when we look at things from, you know, sort of like a more sort of longitudinal perspective, you know, in retrospect, you can look back and, you know, as many kids struggle in adolescence, I think that that usually is a pivotal time for a lot of people for different reasons. But I think and when you look back and you talk to people who have experienced mental health issues as an adult and you ask them, you know, when did this start to occur? A lot of people will point towards adolescence, you know, 12, 13, 14 that age group, that kind of like yeah. middle school, junior high, mm -hmm. you know, early high school. And it was the same for me. And I think part of it was endogenous. You know, I come from a family that unfortunately has a lot of, as a longstanding, like, you know, mental health um, issues in my um, extended family for generations. But I also think it was, um, you know, uh, personality. I think I was always a very introverted kid. I always... And, and probably largely the reason I gravitated to the sport that I did was, you know, was um, it was an individual sport. I mm -hmm. never felt like I could fit in sometimes in other sports. And I think there's there's also some of those characteristics. And you look at all those things and you think, like, well, how did this develop into something that six years down the road would essentially throw me into like a catatonic depression? I'm not using that like lightly. Um I look back and I think it was, it was sort of building that whole time. I think in BMX for many, in many reasons worked very well, you know, in my life, it gave me enthusiasm. It gave me something to strive for. It gave me goals. It gave me athleticism, being with friends, traveling around the country, essentially what you just described as, you know, living, and I described as living the dream. But I think, um, when that's, when I started to struggle, even in racing because of my depression, then it was like the perfect storm of like, oh, great. Now I had this thing I was super passionate about and I was really good at and I had built a community and everybody mm -hmm. knew me and I was one of the top in the sport. And then to, to, to slowly sort of like, well, I'm not doing good in racing. Now I'm not recognized. Now I'm not winning. Now I'm not making the finals. Now I'm just like, now I'm getting dropped from my team. Now, um, you know, it just the same thing that had had provided me with all these sort of highs, let's say, mm -hmm. and all this enthusiasm was then also like fueling the depression more and more because I wasn't excelling anymore in the thing that I was best at. Yeah. This is, yeah. 
This is an area that I've, I've wondered about for a lot of athletes when they start to see some sort of downward spiraling, mm-hmm. when identity has been really closely held with the actual success on, on the bike or in any kind of performance, and how that can quickly dismantle your, your sense of self. Was that something that you felt like was part of your story? Oh, absolutely. At the time, you know, when I was 19, 20, you know, that age, my entire identity really revolved around BMX racing. My entire friend group, my entire community, my entire like life goals. I mean, um, I was actually at the time also, I was in college um, on a on a bike racing scholarship. And uh, I was also writing for um, a BMX magazine at the time. That was like my first job, you know, when I was in college. So, I mean, everything about my life was very, you know, closely tied to this sport. And then it wasn't just that this, that because of my depression, I couldn't compete at the level that I could compete at before. It was because I wasn't involved at that level. It was like everything fell by the wayside then. So everything that you identify with for so long is all of a sudden like not there. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do now? You know? And I think, um... You know, I I thought about this a lot. I think for me, it was a unique experience that I would have had a depression or mental health struggles anyway. Um, But I think it's also important for us, you know, as as a community to make to make it such that there's other things in place that bring people joy, bring bring kids joy, bring adults joy, because at some point your sport that you're the most passionate about for whatever reason. And we've seen this on a smaller scale, just with injuries and things like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, how does it make you feel when you get injured and you can't ride for two months or three months or, you know, and Mm -hmm. then it's like, Oh, I'm not hanging out with my friends. I used to, and I'm not going for rides and nobody's coming over to see me because they're all out riding. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So I think it's really important that the, 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 the community maintains even, or you try to maintain the community, you know, as difficult as that can be sometime, even if the sport itself for either a short time, time period, or even maybe a long time period that, that you can't engage in that or even engage in it at the same level. Yeah, no, that is, I, I think that is very true. And, you know, some of the, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest where, you know, tiny, small town where it was hilarious to see, you know, like I, can't tell you the number of, you know, kind of lousy casseroles I helped, you know, deliver (laughs) to somebody's house after someone died or something terrible happened. And it's been very cool recently to see. And I mean, it's kind of hilarious where you're like, oh, why are we taking this lasagna over? Oh, well, so-and-so broke his wrist. Right. Or somebody's laid up because she just ruined her knee. But the beauty of that is seeing that community come together outside of the day that you're riding. Yeah. Which is incredibly important because for those of us who put heart soul life time energy into that riding yeah if that doesn't have community around it that's a massive chunk of your life yeah and if those people can't be there for you off the bike you might just be in a world of hurt Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i agree and i think there is um you know it's interesting i don't i i imagine you know the audience that's listening to this is probably you know they're probably largely composed of people who view cycling, you know, not just as an ancillary hobby that they do, but as part of their life. But I do think that it's important that people recognize that a sport is, yes, you know, an athletic endeavor that we do, you know, because we enjoy it and it's fun. But really for a lot of people, it becomes such a part of their identity and such a part of um, their life that you can't, you don't really, you can't really separate yourself from that activity. Your community and that activity are intimately like connected. Mm -hmm. So exactly like what you described, that 
you know, and I'd, I'd even challenge, you know, um, listeners to do this when, you know, when you, when you know that somebody is at a commission for whatever reason, you know, whether it's injury, maybe they're going through their own, you know, kind of struggles and they just don't seem to be as enthusiastic about riding. Um, maintain connection with that person as best as you can. You know, if they can't, if they had a torn ACL and they can't ride for six months, just make it a point to reach out to them, to, to, you know, to visit them, to go hang out on the porch and, you know, have a beer with them or whatever, so that they know they're still connected with that friend group, even though they're not on the bike. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's important for people dealing with tangible, visible, physical injuries, perhaps all the more so for those dealing with depression and the things that other people cannot see or understand. Um, and one of the things that you noted as that year where things sort of went from the top to the bottom was that, was it a part of your story that it is for so many others that not only was it challenging to see this thing you love being pulled away, but was it profoundly isolating as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There was even a couple times where I, uh, and I think, and I think this, this happens often. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear other stories, but you almost retract from the thing that Mm -hmm. you, that, that used to bring you so much joy, which is isolating in itself. I mean, because there was like, I couldn't even look at a bike because it was so painful Mm -hmm. to remember that this had been so important to me like a year, just a year or two earlier. And now Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go to the track. I didn't want to see my friend because it just was too painful that I'm not out there. I'm not racing with them. And very quickly, actually, it occurred, like, you know, you go from like being very involved to within like a year or two, like feeling like you're forgotten, you know, not by anybody's fault, but just, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, uh, you know, I think one of the things that has brought me like a lot of solace over the years, and this answers a a question um, from you, Josh, that I didn't get to touch on earlier, is that even when when BMX, um, you know, sort of went by the wayside. I don't know how else to describe it. It really wasn't intentional. And I quite honestly, there were times where I was like, well, I'll probably race again. Because that transition was so difficult for me, I never went back and raced at the level that I I did. And and really I was still in my early twenties. You know, I could have gone mm-hmm. back three years later and probably raced and mm-hmm. and I did occasionally, but it never it never had the the hold on me um uh you know that it that it had um, during those days when I was sort of like, quote unquote, in my prime. And I think it was because of the the circumstances of that transition. You know, if I had, if I had injured my knee and I had, you know, had to be out off the bike for a year and rehab or whatever, and I think I would have come back, but I think it was the circumstances around it being, um, a mental health related, you know, issue and seeing myself sort of go through this decline, and, and almost like isolate, self-isolate my, myself mm-hmm. as a way of like pr- preservation almost from this sport. Um, I think that's probably why I never, never went back, um, never went back at the level at least that I had been. And it kind of, it's interesting. I mean, I have a couple friends, quite honestly, one lives up in Denver, or two actually live up in the Denver area now. And uh, we had raced on the East Coast, you know, together and traveled around and raced professionally together. They still race and they're still shredding. I mean, they're not oh, racing man. at the wow. pro level, but my, yeah. but um, two of my peers, um, you know, that we raced with back then. I mean, they're still going to Grand Nationals. Um, they're they're still racing. You know, they're still racing BMX in the, you know, the the classes, you know, of of our age groups now. Mm-hmm. Um, but so sometimes I think like, yeah, it'd be cool to get another bike and 
you know, get out there with them and just like have fun and, and reintegrate, you know, back into my roots. Um, so I think I, I think, uh, that might be, that might be still in the cards, you know, uh, you know, just to go out and have fun with them. And there's something about riding the BMX track that will never leave me, you know, doing a mm-hmm. gate star or going through like what we call like, you know, kind of like a six pack or an eight pack, which is like, you know, six mm-hmm. or eight consecutive, like roller. I mean, there's just something about that that will like never leave me. Um, but I did want to mention this too, because Josh asked about this earlier and I haven't answered his question yet. During the time that I was racing BMX, you know, it didn't end there with BMX. Um, and I think this has been really, really important for me. I was interested in cycling in general. I was definitely mm-hmm. the kid who was racing BMX, but also was like, Hey, what's this mountain biking stuff all about? You know, I was watching the Tour de France. I was like keeping up with like all the kind of cycling in general, but just because I was fascinated with bikes and I loved them. So while most of my peers at the time were not really into mountain biking, they were kind of more focused on BMX. Um, I was actually very interested in mountain biking as well and never took it, never was a, a competitive at that age. But I got my first mountain bike, you know, when I was 13 years old, it was 1990. It was, Whoa. yeah. Okay, yeah. what was that bike? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna a, put we're gonna put tra- air quotes around yeah. mountain bike right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was kind of like a glorified hybrid, you know. Yeah. Um, what we consider like a bike path bike, you know, today. So it was a Trek Antelope 820. It okay. had a rigid fork. It had no no suspension whatsoever. It had cantilever brakes. It had um, you know, it had like uh one of those uh oblong um chain rings, um. And it was like, yeah, I mean, it was like, I mean, it was state of the art. It was, it was rad. You know, I was really excited about it. I, I had had a, I had a neighbor down the street and he had a mountain bike and then he was letting me borrow his, his other mountain bike for a while. And then I said to my dad, you know, I was like, dad, I really want to get a mountain bike, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you already have a BMX bike. And I was like, oh, yeah, but I think this would be good for my cycling, you know, my fitness and everything, <laughs> yeah, my training. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so a couple months later, it was Christmas, I'll never forget, we went down to our local uh, bike shop, it was called Genesis Bicycles in Easton, Pennsylvania, and we bought a mountain bike. And I remember, I still remember the mechanics sort of checking it over before my dad bought it, it was hanging in the stand, you know, and um, yeah, and I, I just laugh at that too, because that was it, that was it, then I had a mountain bike now too, so, <laughs> you know. Um, Did it get much use? Oh yeah, yeah, I rode that thing like... That it was, I mean, I rode mountain bikes a lot. So then there was like this parallel, even though I was racing BMX, it was this parallel goal then that I was going to be, you know, like a female John Tomac. And I was going to, you know, I was reading (laughs) all the mountain bike magazine. I was getting every BMX magazine, every mountain bike magazine, you know, like, um, and, uh, yeah. And I mean, back then, it's so funny. I sound so like, you know, when I was young, you know, we didn't have this like, you know, suspension <laughs> yeah. and stuff. But yeah, it really yeah. was. It was so funny. You know, I think about things I rode back then. I'm just like, oh my gosh, how did I not get more injured? How did I mean, any of us not get more injured? You were riding <laughs> you know? a gravel bike. Yeah. Let's be honest. Essentially, a full rigid gravel bike with like mountain bikes back then had like 1.8 yeah. tires. You know, and 2. I was 2.1 pan racers. If you're really if feeling you re- burly, fire XC pros. Yeah, yeah. Were like, red yeah. stripes. Yep. Um, you know, and. You know, and of course, on top of it, you know, I'm riding in like, you know, my canvas, like slip on vans, my jeans and a foam <laughs> helmet. And I, you know, and it's like, I look at this helmet and I'm like, how could this even like be at all protective? Yeah. <laughs> you know? it was you had the helmet. Yeah. You had yeah. the helmet. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I laugh about it, but it's like, sometimes I look at some stuff that we rode and it was like, 
how did I not crash? How did I not crash on this? <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I loved mountain biking. I loved being in the woods. I loved, um, you know, I love just, yeah, this experience of being out, being in the woods, like being in the wilderness, you know, mm. being out on these places on your bike that you would never dream of, like, you know, being, you can never, you can never get there in any other way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, back in Pennsylvania, you know, there was no such thing even at that time as like mountain bike trails. You were just riding basically like go past through the woods or you were riding essentially hiking trails. Um, so a lot of the terrain, you know, in, on the East Coast is, is very rugged as a result of that because most of the traditional mountain bike trails were really just hiking trails. Yeah. Did yeah. you make some of your own trails? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, we, well, it's funny that you asked that because I don't, I don't get back to PA too much, but when I do go back there, um, you know, I go to this area that, that I started, started race or started riding at and it's called Jacobsburg, um, J- Jacobsburg state park. And, you know, now there's all the, you know, there's a lot of signage there and everything and names of the different trails. And I think to myself, I'm like, wow, like, you know, I remember when these were just paths through the woods and there wasn't any marking for this. Mm. And the fact that like, you know, I can, I can attest to the fact that like, you know, mountain biking has grown into this like well-recognized sport, you know, all the confirmation I need is to see these trail markings, Yeah, you know, and it's, and it's just super cool. It's super cool to like, think that from a historical perspective in some way, shape and form, I was a little tiny part of that, you know, blazing this little trail, you know, literally that was a goat- blazing a trail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a goat path, you know? Um, and now it's, now it's an actual trail. Wow. That's fantastic. Mountain biking stayed somewhat present with you through the BMX times. And then what that, that year where everything kind of got hung up, what happened in the midst of that? And where did cycling come back into it? Yeah. So I think, um, that's a great question. So I think, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I brought up mountain biking at the same time is because I felt like because I wasn't as you know, because mountain biking wasn't as such, such a part of my identity at the time as BMX was, when I distanced myself a little bit from BMX, I still felt okay to mountain bike. And quite honestly, like that was like part of my own healing is I could still connect with a bicycle. It just wasn't in the same way. And Mm -hmm. this was something I could go out and I could still ride and I could still, you know, go, I could be by myself. I didn't need, you know, I didn't need another, a group to race with. I didn't need to go to a track. So that definitely helped. Um, it helped sort of transition me back into bicycling again. Um, during this time, I didn't mention this, but during this time, I also like, um, you know, gained like 60 pounds probably. So then I also had to, it was partly due to going from a very active life to a sedentary life, but also had largely to do with a lot of like medications I was being mm-hmm. treated, you know, for at the, you know, being treated with at the time. So then the, the the kind of agency that got me back into riding was really like, I just wanted to live an active, healthier life. And I wanted to reconnect with that through bicycling. I knew I couldn't, yeah. I knew it wasn't real feasible for me to connect maybe at that time through BMX. So I, I gravitated back toward the mountain bike and mm-hmm. that has remained, you know, pretty constant, um, really ever since. So, you know, 20 plus, 20 plus years of, you know, healing and recovery. And we talked about this a little bit before the show. There are many people who will sort of flippant, flippantly say, yeah, I'm not right if I don't ride. 
um, which might just mean they need a minute to decompress after work or what have you. But what kind of, can you paint us a picture for what biking meant to you as you were coming to terms with a life or, or a period of your life where serious mental health challenges were a part of your daily existence? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my life, I have to be honest, like, and it's funny because I haven't really talked about this for a while, but when I think about it, you know, between the ages of like 20 and even uh, really throughout my 20s, let's say, my life was pretty chaotic. And it's, and I don't, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I was in and out of the hospital dozens of times. I mean, I was about as like, kind of like financially and kind of like these, um, uh, you know, kind of developmental milestones that you think about in terms of like mm-hmm. a young adult's life. Like none of those happened. You know, I did manage to graduate college, but that was only like after like three tries and like dropping out and starting again and dropping out of another school. Um, and then I was uh, living in a group home. Um, I mean, it was like things that like, honestly, like I'm kind of, I don't mean to laugh like in a, yeah, I don't mean to like shame those experiences, but like nobody would ever even believe me. Some of the stuff that like I told them, people who know me now, like, yeah. like, they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're making this up. I'm like, no, I'm totally not making this up. I wouldn't make this stuff up. But my life was super chaotic. I mean, I lived in a group home with like homeless, like, you know, addicts and um, recovering addicts and people with other serious mental health problems who were homeless. Um, I was in and out of hospitals, like, there were, there were times, I think it was 2005, where I was actually in a facility more than I was at home. So, yeah, wow. I mean, I've been in treatment programs. You know, people stay in them for two weeks. I was in them for like six months. I mean, it was like, you know, I would have to say I went from being immersed in this life of cycling, you know, maybe like eight or ten years earlier to being very immersed in a life of, quite honestly, like crisis, chaos, and, and mental health. Like really it was just my whole life became mental health. I was in treatment. I was out, I was out for like a couple months. I'd be back in. I mean, it was like, you know, no stability. Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, what, what really to circle back and to answer your question, what really, how cycling became kind of a constant in this is I really felt this need to, re-identify with something healthy, you know, in my life and have for something to be sort of like a rock, like a stable kind of touch point, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I kept going back to cycling, you know, I kept thinking like, this is something I'm familiar with. This is something I can do. This is something that's been a part of my life. And really like when your life is kind of chaotic like that, you talk to anybody who's had a chaotic life for whatever reason, it's like you have very few constants. You have very few constants except crisis. You don't have yeah. const- constants in jobs. You can't hold them. You don't have constants in relationships. You don't have constants in friendships. Um, you don't have any stability. So you you latch on to things that you you can gain some stability from. And for me, that was that was the only real thing that was a constant was was bikes. And did you then step into racing with that or was it literally just I need this for me alone in the woods? Forget all of y'all. Yeah, <laughs> this is just yeah. me. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I I'm a very introverted person, you know, to begin with, and I think that, you know, having that I, th- I talked about a little earlier, this allure of having this like individual sport that, um, that you can do on your own time, um, with, without any, you know, without, you know, anybody else was very, uh, it was very fitting for me because quite honestly, I also lived a very isolated life at that time. I didn't have a bunch of friends to go ride with. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
so I think uh, I think that was part of it. It sort of lent itself to that stage in my life and also my kind of introverted personality. Um, I just think there was something very healing about uh, being being in the woods, being in a forested area, being close to nature. That was very instrumental for me. Um, I, you know, it was really like, quite honestly, how I filled my day a lot of times and also how, like, what brought me joy. So I think more than anything, it, it, uh, it was, it was very peaceful, I think for me. And at the time I didn't really think about competing or anything like that. Um, I was really just using it to, you know, to just, just kind of like wrap, wrap around some like stability in my life Yeah. and give me something, you know, to look forward to, um, and to, to latch onto. I mean, um, you know, it's like, we think about like, what are the reasons that we all live? We live for, mm-hmm. we don't live just to work or just to mm-hmm. maintain our sanity or whatever, or, you know, just to, just to, uh, maintain your daily life. You, you live, you know, for enriching experiences. And so that was my way of bringing this enriching experience of mountain biking or bike riding in general into a life that was otherwise, you know, kind of chaotic at the time. From what you've shared so far, I mean, that that's an incredible window into a very misunderstood world of healthcare. And just the, the way you describe having nothing constant except the chaos um, or biking for you uh, is, is very, very uh, illuminating, I would say. As even in a healthcare setting that I work in, it is, it's all about acute management. Mm-hmm. And nobody really understands how do you help someone in the midst of any kind of mental health struggle for long term. You know, you can try to address something that arose today and then hopefully, you know, get them back home or wherever. But then what happens to, to manage that long term? Yeah. I, I don't have good answers in healthcare, but what, what have you experienced, if anything, that has been successful? No, that's a great, that's a great question. And I, and I, of course, as you, as you probably surmise could, could speak for hours on this topic alone. Um, I think, you know, I can sum it up in a nutshell by just saying, I think, you know, we're the wealthiest, you know, we're the wealthiest nation in the world, you know, um, providing, you know, some of the best, we have the reputation of providing some of the best healthcare, um, you know, in the world. And I think where we miss the mark is, and we have done this historically, you know, because we base most of our mental health treatment in a medical model is we, we miss the humanness of the person, um, that we're treating, you know, and, and I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, um, I went to graduate school for social work. So I would put myself even in that category of being a provider of services at some, at, you know, in, in, on also being a recipient of services. So I have a, you know, a dual sort of vantage point with this. A lot of times, even in when I was a provider, what we look to is we look for stabilization. We look for, you know, a person who has, you know, with symptom management, a person who's symptom free. I mean, that's how we kind of gauge wellness or historically how we gauge wellness. And really like what we're just missing is what are the other elements that are going to enrich this person's life? What are the other elements that this person brings to the table about their own passions, their dreams, their strengths? Um, when a person has a, I've noticed this in addiction. I've noticed this um, uh, when people have had a criminal history. And I also notice it when people have a, have a, you know, moderate, especially a moderate to long-term, you know, kind of chronic mental health condition is that people around them, whether it's providers, family members, friends start to view that person on, in terms of 
that um, that either addiction, that history or that, you know, mental health issues. So I think unintentionally, sometimes we miss the the potential for true recovery and true true capacity to develop these other strengths that, you know, people people might have dormant that are kind of being sort of concealed you know, in a way by these other struggles or, or even concealed in by the way we treat these struggles. So, um, you know, for me, I think when I, you know, when I look at the mental health system and uh, I'm, I'm no, by no means pointing fingers, I don't think there's easy solutions to things, but really like we, what I would encourage all providers and even family members and supporters and friends is to really look at helping that person develop a life essentially outside of this particular struggle that they have, Hmm. or maybe, maybe not outside of it. Maybe I shouldn't use that language. Maybe it's like in consideration of it, but not have it be the focal point. There will be times when a mental health challenge, for example, will be more acute and it will have to be the focal point. But I think if we continue after the, after like say a crisis has subsided to keep it as the focal point, it really, um, you really miss the opportunity for that to help that individual develop things in, in, in other parts of his or her life. And there's a great book. Um, I, I'm, I'm not done reading it. I started reading it a while ago and I kind of pick it up and, and read it every so often. I'm mm-hmm. slowly progressing. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys do that. I read like oh, five I absolutely books do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I actually don't know anybody who doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really strange to read a book from like start to finish. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It does that. Yeah. Um, so there's this book, its title spoke to me and that was what attracted me to it. There's a a woman named Marsha Linehan. She's like a really, really like well-known like psychologist, um, has been around for decades, developed, um, this treatment called dialectical behavioral therapy. She wrote a book called, called building a life worth living. And just the title itself, I think captures a lot of, um, what, what we need to do as friends, supporters and and providers and really just how we view mental health in general is how do you help that person who's struggling build a life worth living? Mm-hmm. And so much focus, as you just said, Josh, is is on sort of um, on just s- symptom management. And that's traditionally how we've, you know, we've we've viewed we've v- viewed treatment and continue to do so. And that's even at a that's even at a. um you know, kind of a individual level. That's that's when you go to treatment. That's when you go to a hospital. I mean, it's all like symptom management. And you know, there's something to be said about that. But there's also, um, we really need to take a much broader and multifaceted approach um, to how to how we help in general. I think um, we we miss the essence of humanness, as I said earlier, and I also think we miss the essence of how we are each sort of interconnected in this world and are the spiritual element, you know, um, I could probably talk for a long time on this, this part of it too, but there's a spiritual piece of why we're here, why we, even people who struggle, why we continue to go on, you know, what drives us to get up every day and continue mm-hmm. living it's particularly if you, if you feel like there's no hope, you know, there's no hope for me. Like yeah. I'm going to continue to struggle with this mental health issue. Like, there has to be a sort of superseding feeling that I might have this, this very serious struggle, but something else is driving me towards living. One, like I said, I've had some of my own challenges with mental health along the way and a bit of depression and anxiety, uh, that definitely required some treatment. 
And one of the things that I remember from my own personal time through that, and I've heard this from others as well, is the difficulty in distinguishing depression as something that is happening to me versus that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a thing. Yeah. It's not like the difference between I am feeling the effects of depression or anxiety versus I am depressed. Mm-hmm. Like, I have nothing that's coming out of me or that I can do that seems to be good enough and that that just keeps driving it deeper. Yeah. In that sense, is part of what you're talking about in this building a life worth living, whatever that might be, whether it is physical things like cycling or it has nothing to do with the <laughs> what your physical body can do on its own, is there a part of that where that's part of what you're talking about, this thing that you can identify and get rooted in something that is outside of this maybe even internal definition that's brewing that isn't particularly helpful? Yeah, I well, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I think, and I just want to tell you, I don't think you're alone. I think there's a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, and I applaud you, you know, for for sharing what you, even what you just did, you know, to the audience and to the listeners. Um, I think that, you know, I think that there's, um, to backtrack a little bit, I think there's a lot of how we define what we, condition we have. I think the the root of that a lot of times is, is shame. Yeah. And I think that, um, if we if we backtrack and we look at uh if we look at like shame and how that manifests and we look at it from an individual perspective about how we define things for ourselves versus like how our culture defines things i think um we have to look at it from both of those vantage points because if you think about it even our treatment like uh our treatment modalities that we have for mental health in particular they're kind of like they're shrouded in sort of confidentiality a lot of times, but really like they're very like shame inducing experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to the hospital. I mean, like I, like I said earlier, I've been in the hospital dozens of times. I mean, it's like the parallels between being in a hospital and being treated like a criminal at times are alarming, alarming. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like I'm here for help and you're treating me like, you know, I did something wrong, yeah. you know? So, um, and I understand, you know, I'm sure I'll have some, healthcare professionals say, we have to have safety standards. We have to do these things. You have to do, and I get that, but, um, there definitely, there's, there's def, there's definitely things we can do as a culture to, to dismantle the shame inducing, you know, kind of, um, the, the shame that comes about when we, when people go to seek help or even that, even when people go to, you know, to, for the first time, you know, and divulge that, like, I'm feeling this way, mm-hmm. that first experience somebody's going to have when they share about their mental health experience, or they go to a professional, if that experience is negative, that's going to be pivotal, you know, for the rest of their, mm-hmm. their life potentially. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think to, to, you know, to, to touch upon what you just said, a lot of it has to do with how we self-define things, but also a lot of it has to do with how the culture has defined, you know, these type mm-hmm. of things or how they, I should say, how they reinforce these type of things. Um, because, you know, even we were talking about this earlier about being injured and things like that. There were so many times that like, you know, I was really, really suffering with just since I've lived in Colorado, some really acute struggles, you know, with um, depression, really depths of despair, you know, kind of depression. Mm-hmm. And, and it and it would it would be different for me, you know, um, and then if I would have, you know, broken my collarbone or something. If I broke my collarbone, you know, I could, you know, maybe one of my friends would, you know, set up a 
food train or whatever the <laughs> yeah, meal yeah, train yeah. or whatever yeah. or uh-huh. seek donations or whatever or you know um or maybe i would post on facebook oh i broke my collarbone i jumped off this thing or whatever you know but it's not the same when you're struggling with something what i call like an invisible illness mm-hmm. sort of because not only do you feel that you don't you don't have sort of that same sort of you know lateral ability to to say things like that but you also and this isn't the criticism towards anybody i have wonderful friends here but you also don't get this it doesn't elicit the same response either it's almost like there is a piece of all of us who i think is like people either don't know how to respond or they want to fix things (laughs) and i think you know we all know a bunch of cyclists, right? They're coaches, they're, you know, teachers, they're working in healthcare, they're fixers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people feel powerless sometimes, powerless, uncomfortable. Um, even the best intentioned friends sometimes don't know how to like, well, now this person said this to me, or now this person posted that, what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, so then I think people are resigned to kind of keep people at arm's length. Maybe sometimes I don't know what to do. Therefore, I'm kind of going to like, you know, and I don't know what to do. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll make it worse if I say something. Right. And then I think how that translates to those of us who do struggle with mental health, it's like, we don't know how then to convey sometimes what we need, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, or what what is the right forum, you know, to say, hey, I'm like really struggling with a serious depression and I I, I don't know what help I need, but, but I'm struggling with serious depression. You yeah. Know? I think even the very understanding that challenges with depression can sometimes be, and we talked about this a bit earlier, like you said, we're all fixers. Mm -hmm. We think that we have this idea (laughs) of like, this is what normal looks like. Apparently, you know, it's like a flat tire on a ride. Like, all right, well, you deflated that. Let's put a tube in there and we'll pump you back up and off you go. Realizing that, no, sometimes the process of sorting through mental health challenges can be a long and enduring struggle that may have an end, but during that period, it might just be about managing the challenges of life in a different way and being with somebody in a different way where something as simple as taking him some food. That's all you need. You yeah. didn't fix anything. But that presence, that act of community is still incredibly important. All the more so for those of us who do have this kinesthetic need to get out, to be moving, to be active. Yeah, I no, I agree 100%. I mean, I think that, you know, if anybody's listening that that is thinking like, well, wow, I, I do know somebody who I think is struggling. Like, what do I do? Or maybe I have been a little hesitant to, you know, to try to help this person because I don't know what to do. You know, I would say for the most part, I never and, and continue even now if I'm struggling, although it's it's not been often. Um, I think the the most important thing that we can all give to each other is our own presence you know, is to, to be with somebody to say, Hey, I don't know exactly what to do, but I just want you to know that we're friends and I'm not going anywhere and I'm here. And if you want to go for a ride, you know, I'm here, we don't have to ride hard. You know, if you're not ready for a ride and you want to just like hang out, you want to take a walk, go for a hike or do something else, I'm here. And I think, I think that in itself is so powerful and just giving the person validation and permission even to, to, uh, to say how they're feeling, I think is really important. Um, because I think that's actually something that we don't do intentionally. I think I like mentioned this earlier, but it's like, we kind of, as a culture, we, 
we steer away from things that are super uncomfortable, you know? Um, Me too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm a social worker over here. So by nature, my personality is probably lends itself more to, you know, to kind of talking about what we call like, you know, like heavier emotions or whatever. Mm. But my social work, you know, I, you know, I've been a social worker, so I'm used to that. So I don't, sh I, I tend not to shy away from stuff like that. Um, I know for me in my own life, there were times where all I wanted to do was just tell someone how I felt mm -hmm. and have it felt and have it feel like it was okay. Not that I expected my friend to magically do something, you know, or mm -hmm. not that, not that I even wanted them to do anything. Um, but I just wanted them to know that the relationship was so strong that I felt like I could share that with them. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the most important thing we can do as friends in the cycling community is be there for each other, not just for the bike riding part, you know, but be there for each other when things are difficult. It's easy to ride, right? Like it's, we all done races, right? It's easier to race. Like when it's like perfect mm -hmm. conditions, right? When it's 70 yeah. degrees, sunny, no wind <laughs> and your bike doesn't have any mechanicals and it's like, Oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's like, think about those races you do where it's like, Oh man, my chain broke. This happened, this, ha you know, it's, it's just horrible conditions. It starts raining. It's like, you know, yeah. but somehow like you make it through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think like that analogy I use a lot, like it's, it's easy, it's easy for, you know, when things are going well, it's much more difficult when things are not going well, but it's also much more meaningful. Just like it's much more meaningful to finish that race that, mm -hmm. you know, presented all these challenges. You There's know? someone with you in the midst of that race where everything goes wrong. Yeah. That is a friend for life. I mean, yeah. some yeah. serious bonding yes. that happens in suffering. And that's great. I'm glad. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, because isn't it like, you know, when you're doing a hard race and you come up to like an aid station and you're like, somebody hands you like a bottle of water. So you're like, that person is great. <laughs> it's the same thing in relationships, right? In Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of... Pretty much my first race, I got bit by a dog and broke my bike in half in the race. And oh he brought me, he brought me a bike. Josh <laughs> yeah. actually brought me a bike yeah. in the middle of the race. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the kind of thing we need. Although I was angry because I just wanted to quit, and he, <laughs> yeah. and he wouldn't let me. Um, you needed it. Yeah, I did. I I needed to finish that. Um, <laughs> so you have described your life as at least in part a period where you were defined where you would have internally defined yourself, maybe externally as well, by racing, and then a period of your life where mental health challenges were pretty, were a pretty significant portion of how your life was defined. And now, perhaps a new phase where neither of those two are really what defines you. What has that looked like and what has that taught you about who you are? That's a great question. I think the, you know, the, the couple things that come to mind, probably two things come to mind quintessentially is I will go back to the, you know, this, the, the bicycle rider versus the bicycle racer. Okay. Like, you know, well, I'll address that, 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 that part first, you know, it's so funny, you know, all these years of being involved in, in bike racing, you know, ra like I said, when I was BMX racing, pro BMX, racing world cups, doing all this stuff and then transitioning into mountain biking and, and even in my mountain biking life, I've never been like, you know, top, you know, UCI racer or anything like that. But I've done some, I've done, uh, I've done uh, probably in the hundreds of like endurance, either races or events of some sort, you know, racing Leadville, racing Shenandoah 100, racing all those kind of races, you mm -hmm. know, 
doing 24 hour races, doing all these, you know, I'm looking at Josh and going, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got you. You know, yeah. doing all these races and, um, you know, and then also, you know, working in the industry and, you know, doing, doing all these different events, like riding 24 hours, you know, on the trainer for kids on bikes. And I'm not sure if, if when Nick Ponzer was on, uh, if he talked about that at all, about how that originated, <laughs> you know. Is there a story but we need to hear? There's a, yeah, there's a story. There's a story. We could take a break <laughs> yeah. for this story if it's a good one. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good one. So the story about the 24 hours of kids on bikes was, <laughs> I can't even tell this. It's so funny. So, you know, this actually does kind of tie into mental health too, because a lot of times people have, a lot of times some people have asked me like, you know, what's been really pivotal in, in, in both ways in my recovery from mental health stuff, but also like, how do you become, how do you become an endurance racer? How do you actually ride your bike for that amount of time? You know, and I think there's characteristics of, you know, people who are resilient, you know, in both, you know, that fall into that helps in both, both of those. Um, so, you know, we were at Criterium and this was back when like, we didn't have Zwift yet. We just had the Compu trainers. I don't know if you guys remember those. No, I, Compu trainers. So I missed like, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, ask anybody in town who's, you know, been like coaching and stuff like that, like for a while. And a Compu trainer was like basically like predated Zwift, so, you know, it was before we had like apps and things like that. So you basically had this, like this trainer that measured like the wattage mm-hmm. on your bike. And then it, you know, you had this like kind of antiquated looking you know sort of <laughs> you know atari looking video yeah, game thing and yeah and you had a little bike on there and it would show your you know the course and your wattage and everything like that nothing like you know all the amenities we have now <laughs> yeah. this is only like six years ago so um we were sitting at criteria and we used to have the compu trainer set up in the winter we used to have four of them out front in the lobby where people would just come in and ride and we have you know we'd have like little mm-hmm. like races and things like that for people just to you know keep the stoke over the winter and those of us who worked at the shop, you know, after work, sometimes we'd jump on and we'd ride. Um, and uh, I don't know, like one day I think we were, there might have been some, you know, drinking involved in this, or I can't say for sure, but um, <laughs> probably. Um, the We were sitting around and it was like a winter day and we said, somebody, somebody said something like, you know, it would be red. If we like rode the coffee trainers like all day long. Like at the time at Criterion, we opened at eight and we closed at eight. Mm-hmm. We were like, yeah, we should ride like the whole time we're open. And then somebody was like, you know what we should do? We should ride like for an entire day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of how the birth of the, um, the 24 hours of, um, a pedal station or 24 hours for kids on bikes event, um, came to be in the first year there was, there was four of us. Um, it was me, Nick Ponzer, John Hurley and Josh Carr who worked at, who we all worked at Criterium and, the first year we raised money, um, we each raised money for a different organization and, um, and we did it and it was like very low key. We didn't really tell many people. We had some people show up and watch us and we had the news show up and, and everything <laughs> and the news showed up. I'll never forget this. It was like, you know, it didn't have any of the fanfare, you know, that it, that it's grown into. Uh, the KO, it was, it was some TV station, you know, here and they, they came at like 5 a.m. and. And they asked Nick, they interviewed Nick and they asked him like, you know, why are you guys doing this kind of fundraiser? And I'll never forget. Nick said, well, you know, 
we're not really like the bake sale type. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, and I'll, we just always laugh at that because I'm like, Nick, yeah, like whenever we're doing like a fundraiser for something and all the subsequent years after that, we were all like, yeah, we're not really the bake sale type. This is why we yeah. do these kind of things. So That's a good answer. Yeah. I like that. So, um, you know, the 24 hours of Kids on Bikes, it, it, uh, it turned into, you know, the next year, Daniel Bird you know, I was on the board of Kids on Bikes at the time and Daniel and who, who knew, you know, we had done this and I had raised money actually for Kids on Bikes that first year. Um, and he said, you know, what do you guys think about doing it again? And, and we were like, sure. You know, he said, what about, what if we do it like part of Indie Give or, you know, and like do it, you know, for the holiday. And we said, sure. And so it kind of grew into this, you know, Daniel joined us that next year and then um, it went from doing it at Criterion, then more people wanted to participate, then we moved it to the Velodrome, and then more people participated, and uh, we moved it to the old pedal station, and then more people participated, we moved it to the Velodrome, and now there's like, you know, all these teams and solo riders, and it, it, it grew from like this, this, this beer beer induced idea you know <laughs> like don't all the best bad ideas. idea yeah. honestly all the best ideas you know sometimes yeah. come when you're just sitting around going you know it would be rad <laughs> you know um so yeah it kind of it kind of grew into this this uh, fundraiser now that up until you know up until covid of course um kind of put the stops a little bit on the events had grown into one of their biggest fundraisers and had you know brought in you know thousands of dollars for you know this organization that's obviously dear to, to, to all of us. Um, but also, you know, um, it just, it just be, just grew into this like really pivotal, you know, kind of community event. And, um, yeah. And, uh, and it was funny. You would have thought after the first year I would have stopped, right? I've done it like yeah. five times. You know? <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, five times solo. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, I did it one year on my single speed. I've actually, the one year I had to, I think it was the fourth year I, uh, I think I stopped at like midnight. I wasn't feeling very good. So that was, that was the only year I didn't finish. But the other four years I, I, um, I did it all solo. And, uh, my, one of my greatest, it's funny. I always think about all these races I've done, everything like that. People say, what are your greatest cycling accomplishments? I have three of them. The first one is, uh, I carried my cross bike one time up the incline and I rode down the bar trail yes. on my drop on bar, cross, cross, bike? On my drop bar cross bike with wow. 32, you know, tires, so you could fit it through the rocks, <laughs> yeah, those boulders, yeah. Yeah, between the boulders. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a the, tight squeeze. The yeah, other one is uh, I wrote I ghost rode just when I lived downtown. I ghost rode one of my bikes home from Criterium. I had ridden there, and then I was taking home another bike. So I I rode my cross bike and I ghost rode my single speed home. You know, and successfully <laughs> crossed like Cascade, Nevada, Uinta. Well done. Almost that, yeah. fell. Almost fell right by Good Neighbor. There was like a bunch of people like out there. Like, oh, Falling, you know um so and then my my other greatest accomplishment in cycling was riding you know the the riding the um riding zwift um in 20 20 I'm trying to think what year it was 2017 was the year we did was my best year with the 24 hours of um, pedal station i rode 320 miles um, in 24 oh hours oh i know and, and uh um, I was secretly kind of kidding Nick because I broke his previous record oh, from the previous year. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, oh my gosh. By like five miles or something. Wow. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of funny when I think about all these, all these things I've done in cycling, you know, it's like, I come back to these, like, you know, these, these, just funny things that you do mm -hmm. that are super challenging and, uh, um, yeah, but I didn't want to tell that story. I did want to tell that story about the, 
24 hours of pedal station and how that originated. Yeah. yeah when yeah, that yeah. comes back, you let us know because we're going to be there. You guys oh, are no. in. We got to make it happen. Yeah, we're gonna, yep. I you're, committed. You're in. Right yeah. now. We'll write, it just happened. We'll, we write it, wrote it down. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. It's on here. Thankfully, I get to edit this. So if I don't feel like doing it, I can cut that later. <laughs> you can just, you can just, yeah, just cut out your out. voice yeah. and just assign Josh. Yeah. Out. I'll just yeah. say, oh, yeah. Great to hear that Josh yeah. just said he would be. <laughs> yeah. I know Matheny yeah. talked about doing it on rollers. I, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I've still had, never ridden on rollers. There's a couple people who have done it on rollers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seems, <laughs> it seems torturous and awful. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I like it's It's all relative, right? That's how I say, oh, you think, oh, oh you should see that. He did it on rollers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes my accomplishment seem not as, cra- <laughs> not as crazy, right? It's incredible. Yeah. Your accomplishment is incredible. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it's super funny. Like when I think about stuff like that, you know, to tie it back into mental health, um, mm-hmm. you know, all these endurance events I've done, um, part of the reason I'm able to do these quite honestly is because, you know, when you're struggling with other things in other parts of your life, you, you develop a great capacity to have resilience, whether that's mentally, physically, you know, um, you also, you know, can kind of like go to places in your mind away from your suffering. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's like an attribute probably of every endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. That's how you're able to like get through all these, you know, grueling events, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like, it's funny. You can talk about like, there's a lot of like, you know, uh, talk about mindfulness. And I feel like with endurance events, like the thing that you want to be least is mindful. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, <laughs> Dissociate. it's exactly, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's the dissociative quality really, um, that, that benefits you the most, um, in it's that resilience and the kind of the out of body almost experiences that you can have, um, while doing these like, you know, grueling events. Yeah. Where does your mind go? in the midst of these things. You know, somebody else asked me that pretty recently. And I would say that, you know, one of the things that has helped me is I use it as like process time. Mm -hmm. So there was a time when I was doing like a lot of like back to back, like 50 or hundred mile, like endurance races. And I always thought to myself, like before I, you know, I was getting ready, I was getting ready to race or whatever. And I would kind of go up to the line and I would say, what do I need to like process? I feel like there's some things I need to process, whether it's like a life transition Mm. or it's like a question about, what should I do with my career or whatever? And I always trusted that in the course of that 50 miles or hundred miles or whatever, that I was going to find out like that answer. And I did. You that's know? fantastic. Well, that's way yeah. more yeah, meaningful than, yeah. than, than yeah. I'm just thinking pedal, 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 pedal. Yeah. <laughs> Josh yeah. is out there being chased by imaginary zombies or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Sometimes it happens, whatever gets you through. Yeah. It's good. I, I'm going to have to challenge myself to you know, have yeah. a purpose going into mm-hmm. this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's different tactics, tactics for sure, but I always feel like it's just, it's, it's a lot of process time. A Mm -hmm. lot of time on the bike is historically what I've always used to process things as we talked about earlier. And then races, even though they're at a much higher intensity, like they often were a platform for that too. Cause it's like, what else do you do when you're racing for 10 hours, except think about, you know, I mean, think about stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Think about stuff that doesn't involve, oh my gosh, I have to climb this hill again, you know? (laughs) <laughs> well i'd love to circle back a little bit yeah and hear about how you ended up in colorado springs and how you got connected with criterium you mentioned that was a pretty pivotal point for you yeah sure thing so i moved in uh, i moved to colorado springs in 2011 and um <clears throat> i moved here because my very close friend um and and who was coaching me at the time when i was trying to 
of sort of transitioning back into racing, racing mountain bikes. Um, Allison Dunlap lived here and lives here to this day, um, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, and so I had come out to race in 2010 and visit her and I had actually done the Leadville 100 for the first time in 2010. And that's actually was my first trip ever to Colorado. And I came out and I stayed with her. And then the following summer I was doing some other races. And, um, in addition to that, and I came back out again. And then finally, like one day I just called her and I said, you know, I said, um, I was working in Pennsylvania. My uh, job had ended and then I had had a housemate and he was moving out. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, instead of looking for a job here, um, I said, this might be just a good time to move. I've always wanted to move to another place. I called up Allison. I said, hey, Allison. I was like, I think I'm going to move out there. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, can you go look at this like rental place for me? And she's like, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm totally serious. I mean, there's nothing like holding me here, you know? And um, yeah. And then I rented a little place um, right downtown and moved out here and put my bikes on the roof and put my possessions at the curb with a little sign that said free. Wow. My, loaded my cats in the car in their little carriers and off we you know went to colorado it was the most brazen thing i've ever done honestly that's fantastic yeah did you ever look back i never i never look back but i will say this you know most people who move to a different place i was in part doing it as we've talked about at length you know in this interview like i had a lot of mental health struggles in pennsylvania not necessarily because of the geography i lived in but there was a lot there that reminded me constantly of those struggles. And I really felt like I was at a point where I wanted to, I wanted a fresh start. I wanted to make new memories. I wanted to make new associations with things. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, when you move to a new place, wherever you go, there you are, you Mm -hmm. know, I think, I think everybody goes into like moving. It's like, I'm going to start a new life, you know? And I think that happens to a point. And it certainly happened for me here over the long term. but the first year or two, I really struggled here. Like I, I, you know, I never lived, I was in a completely different area. None of my family going back generations has ever lived outside of Pennsylvania. So I was 1800 miles away from basically everything I've known in my life, you know, starting from scratch, you know, making new friends, making new, you know, trying to find work um, and trying to kind of also live in the cycling, even in cycling. I mean, I was an expert mountain biker, you know, when I moved here, but, but being in this environment where I'd gone from like, like being an expert mountain biker in Pennsylvania and racing in like a pool of like, you know, 10 women, you know, to coming here and like Allison invited me like on a group ride, like the first, within the first couple of days I lived here and I show up and there's like eight girls who are all super fast and hucking these big things at Palmer Park and like (laughs) all pro races. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, it was just, it was very like, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was daunting. It was, it was, there was a, there was a part of it that was very welcoming, you know, it was like my dream almost like, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by all these rad women, you know, but at the same time it was just uncomfortable. I was like, oh my gosh, like I've never been in a place where like I had all these people to ride with all the time, you yeah. know, and it was kind of like, and I say, I don't know how it is there now because I haven't been there for 10 years, but when I lived in PA, like, like if you knew a woman who bought like a high-end bike, she was racing, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. like honestly, like, and even a guy, I would say for that matter, like, you know, it was interesting when I worked at Criterion, people would come in there all the time and just drop like five, $6,000 on a bike and they weren't racing. They were just, they just wanted a nice bike. They wanted a nice stump jumper, you know? And it was like, you know, it was like, yeah, that was like a big transition for me. 
Um, mm-hmm. And even just to have people to ride with, I think, was interesting because if I wanted to ride, particularly with another another woman, you know, I'd have like two like racer friends, you know, one lived an hour in this direction and one lived an hour in that direction. And we'd, we'd meet at a trail in the middle. You know, it was like a big yeah. orchestration. Whereas here, it's yeah. like any given day, I can go out and ride with like five super fast people that will drop me, you know, on mm-hmm. every climb. So... It was an adjustment, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you know, to say the least. <clears throat> so it sounds like you found some some riding friends pretty quickly, but did it? What did it take to really feel like a part of the community for you? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. I think the more time I spent here, and I have to say, um, you know, shout out to all of, all of my friends here in Colorado Springs. This has been the most wonderful community. You know. Um, been very supportive of me through a lot of the things I just I mentioned earlier um but also just there's a sense of that it's a big city but has a has a very closely connected you know cycling community um I think you know I think it took time I think you know I worked at I worked in a school district for the first two years um that I lived here and then uh, in 2013 after my job at the school district ended I actually was just cruising by Criterium one day on the way home from Falcon trail. And I stopped in there to get a drink and my friend Josh worked there. And I said, Hey, Josh, I'm like, Hey, like, do you know if like they like we're looking for anybody like part-time here? He goes, yeah. He's like, actually, yeah, you should talk to Nick, you know, our owner, cause we're looking for part-time people. And yeah, and that was it. I went to talk to Nick and then I think I had to bug him again, like, you know, later, like, <laughs> <laughs> back, like two or three times. And I'm like, Nick, I'm like, like for real. I'm like, look hey, at yeah. like, you know, I know how to, you know, I know about bikes and everything. So anyway, yeah. And then he, he hired me um, in 2013 and then I stayed there for seven years and there's, there's so much I could say about Criterion and, you know, it could probably be like a podcast all on its own about the culture there and the, and, and how Nick and, and, you know, the managers, um, Ben and Mike and AJ, how, how that business is run and carried out and not only its impact on the community, but really like its impact on and, and model really for, um, a bike shop, you know, in this current, you know, industry and in our, you know, in our community and in our, in, in our culture. So, um, Working at Criterion was really pivotal for me in many ways. And the the most profound way was, you know, we we spend we spend so much time of our life as a, adults working, like 40 plus hours a week, you know, all of mm-hmm. us. And its impact on you, whether positive or negative, I think is, you know, is is probably ranked as one of the most impactful things in your adult life, right? So, you know. Criterium has been the first place that I've ever worked where I could go to the workplace and be who I was. And I feel like it was a validating environment. I kind of laugh, you know, we would all, we would all laugh at the shop about that. We're all kind of like a bunch of like, as many, maybe many bike shops are, we're kind of like a bunch of misfits, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, we're the most like educated, you know, group of people, you know, um, all of us, like most, a lot of us went to college for something else. And then cycling, you know, kind of drew us to the bike, working in the bike shop. And we were all just kind of like, you know, I say that in a, you know, in a lighthearted way, we were all kind of like misfits. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like this, like, I would joke around and I I love those. I love them. Like I go in there to this day and like, it's like this, you know, we're like a big dysfunctional family, (laughs) you know, that you love, you know? And, um, but you know, Nick's, Nick's support of me. And I would say my, my coworkers support of me as well. And just 
I never felt that I couldn't be transparent about how I was feeling or if I was struggling with anything. And taking that anxiety away from the workplace, I think makes a more productive workplace. Yeah. That worker, that bosses and managers and owners, they're understanding, they're flexible. They And, and at, at the end, it's, it's they, they are utilizing your knowledge, skills, and experience and your value that you bring to that, to that business. Whereas when you have a, when you have a workplace where there's kind of like a more shameful culture, you know, or maybe not even intentionally, but there's like, well, you can't, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you you can't talk about certain things or you can't say the reason that you need the day off Mm -hmm. or whatever that kind of promotes like this, a culture of sort of like secrecy almost. And it makes you feel shameful about, you know, well, now I have to lie and I have to say, well, no, I have the flu instead of just saying, you know what, I'm really struggling with my mental health and I think I'm going to need, you know, two days off. Yeah. You know, I don't have to say that, you know, what criteria am I, and it didn't happen that often, but if I had to go to treatment or I had to do something like that, I could just say to Nick, Ben, Ryan, whoever at the time was my supervisor, hey, I, I need to leave, you know, on such and such a day, you know, at this time because yeah. I have to go to treatment or I have to whatever. Um. You know, in the end, I like to feel like, you know, I spent, I spent seven years there and I, and I really valued working there. I valued all the customers that came in and I loved getting to know them. And I valued all the work that I got to do in the community, you know, on behalf of the shop, but really to the benefit of the greater good of, you know, our city. Um, and I, I really felt very valued there and what I was able to contribute despite having some of these, you know, struggles sort of in the wings, um, was beneficial, you know, to a lot of people. So, um, I hope that, I hope that's, uh. I hope that's felt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so cool hearing about how those communities exist here in our town and Criterium. We, we keep having more people from Criterium on our show. I know. Incidentally, I was say. It, it, it was yeah. not <laughs> deliberate. Yeah. 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 But we're a good it's bunch. Just, it's a cool, cool crowd. But thank you for, for sharing all that. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we could go on for absolutely ever, apparently. Yes. yes. Um, before we do close up shop, though, we do want to ask at least one set of questions that we have asked nearly all of our guests. You might have caught this if you listen to a couple episodes. We generally tend to ask people, what is your worst day on a bike? And what is the best day you can remember on two wheels? Yeah. Does that, does, does anybody ever respond that those are the same event? (laughs) More often than you realize. (laughs) You know, it's funny as an endurance racer, I'm sure people have said this before, but like, sometimes like, you know, you think like you're halfway through this race and you're like, man, this is like the most awful thing. Like, why did I sign up to do this? And then on top of it, you go, why did I, I paid to do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, you get through the race and you, you know, you get done and you're all, you know, you're, you're, you're stoked then you want to like, when's the next one, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, we should so, investigate mountain biking stages of grief at some point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. something in there, something yeah. real in there. Yeah. yeah, endurance racing stages of grief. There you go. Um, yeah, the best day um, was the best day and the worst day, right? Mm-hmm. Best day and worst day. Hmm. Oh man, I need a second to think about this. Yeah, I don't, this is hard. This is hard. I don't know. There's been so many good days. I mean, honestly, (laughs) like they all kind of like blend into each other. And I would just say that like, I've just had a really great, I've been really privileged. Honestly, I've been really blessed to, to have so many 
I mean, I've had so many great days, you know, on the bike that I can't even sit here and pick out just one. I mean, it sounds like That's cliche, a great but I'm um, problem to have. I know. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, it's just, um, I, I, I probably share like, probably like my most like, like memorable one, mm-hmm. I think was, you know, um, I, I was racing, uh, I was racing in Pennsylvania and, um, I was racing, um, this race, um, I was racing this this race in uh kind of like state college like area of of Pennsylvania and really rocky trails I mean really like very rugged terrain and if anybody hasn't ridden on the east coast I highly recommend it it's very fun but very challenging mm-hmm. and one one year it was a previous year I had kind of just gotten back into cycling and I had finished like I kid you not like like I was looking at my watch going, Oh gosh, I'm not going to make it to the next checkpoint. I'm going to get cut oh, off. Cut off. You know? yeah, yeah. And I was coming up on this aid station and I was fully prepared to like, they're going to pull me out of this race. It was a 50 mile race and, and they're going to pull me. And then I got up there and there was a couple guys sitting there and they're like, Oh, we're done. You know, we're too tired to go on. And then the lady said, I was like, yeah, I guess I have to stop. And she goes, well, you feeling all right? I was like, yeah, I feel great. She's like, you can go on. I'll just let you through and you'll be the last one. You know? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yes. I was like, I made it. You know, and I was literally the sweep guy. Bless his heart. Oh was riding gosh. behind me. And I'm like, dude, I just want to let you know. It's going to be a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I finished dead last in that race. And it took me like, I kid you not, like, it was like 10 hours or something. It started oh raining. Like at the mm. end of the race, I'm descending the super rocky, like sketchy hill in the rain. And the sweep guy was right there with me. And I came across the line and like everybody's like, yeah, you know, and like all cheering for me. Yeah. I was like the last one. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because that was one year, same race, same course. The next year I went back and I made the podium at that race. Oh, and, oh my gosh. And I, the reason I bring it up is not to give myself a claim or anything like that, but I think the whole theme of this interview is what is possible in your life, whether it's recovery from mental health, whether it's doing something challenging that you previously thought like you couldn't do before. And I went from barely finishing that race and just being mm-hmm. gratified that I did finish it, which was an accomplishment in itself, to coming back the next year and finishing like like several hours faster than I had finished like the year before. Yeah. And that would have never even been on my radar, like, you know, the year before that. And all of a sudden, it wasn't even on my radar (laughs) when I was racing that year. And then I looked down and I was like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Like, what time is it? And I even said to somebody, I was riding with, what time is it? Yeah. (laughs) Like, just got to make sure here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't go into some like time warp or something like that. But yeah, and it was amazing. And that was really like what gave me the confidence, um, you know, to do other things in my life and to say, wow, I've really like crossed, like, I've really like, you know, successfully am starting to sort of break through back into like my values and what I love to do. And that was really the first time I felt the courage to sort of move in a direction that I wanted to do, not only with cycling, but with other things in my life. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. The worst day, I mean, oh, wow. um, the worst day, I mean, well, it, you did hear me talk about the five times I did the 24 hours of... <laughs> okay. Because <Yeah>. yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, because whatever you're about to say is worse <laughs> than breaking your face. No, that, yeah. No, the worst day, um, I, I don't know. I can't really, I mean, yeah, crashing in BMX was, that was, that was a bad crash. Um, the worst day, um, I can't say I've had like a really bad, like 
Well, I, Never I can't bad think day of to like, ride. Yeah, I can't think of a time when I was like, you know, like this bad is this ride is so bad that I want it to be over. Do you know? It was always like, oh, that kind of sucked. But you know, that that one part was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Type two fun. So, Type two. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so Josh, I've got one more question. But what else have you got before we th- finish things off? Well, I would love to hear if through these thousands and thousands of hours that you've spent on the bike in your life, have you encountered anything odd on trail or course? You mean or... besides other riders that were riding with me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are some odd, odd riders out there. Very odd ones. Definitely yeah. could be included. <laughs> um, you know, kind of the funniest thing probably that I've ever experienced in my life, and I, and I can't remember exactly who was with me on this ride. I know Allison was there. It was a night ride. We were at Palmer Park. And anybody who was with us would remember this, but you know, we're, we're night riding, we're in Palmer. This was like years ago. It was probably like almost 10 years ago. Um, we ran it. I think we actually ran into another one of our friends who was also riding. Um, we're all riding together at some point and we roll up on this, at this intersection on this guy, no light, like, you know, hard tail, like old bike, no helmet, long hair, like, you know, we were, and he's like, Hey guys, Hey, what's going on? You know, you guys riding? Do you mind if I join? And we're just like, Oh my gosh, this is like a disaster <laughs> yeah. waiting to happen. Right. I never, I, this guy must've been like pro racer in disguise. I never seen somebody who could ride in the dark with the <laughs> skill, you know, and the speed that this guy rode. And we were all just like, Oh my gosh, like, who is this guy? And we were all just, we were just cracking up because it's like it's like the the people you know it's like we were just joking around about palmer park but like only in palmer park yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah we had this guy rode along with us for like a couple miles he was like yeah, i think i'm gonna peel off here oh thanks for thanks for you know thanks for letting me ride with you we're like hey man yeah take it easy <laughs> he just went off into the distance no light nothing <laughs> like, wow you know i think like, i i like to say i know that park like the back of my hand but i'm not gonna ride it blind in the dark yeah, I mean, the it was the spirit of Palmer Park going right there. I was yeah. gonna say he might have been an apparition of some sort, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it was it was super funny. Wow. All right, so there's something we touched on at the very very start, and then we never got back to. Who is Robbie Spokes? Oh yes. my gosh, this might be a whole other podcast episode. Oh, um, Ooh. no, no, it's actually I. It's probably embellished. I think there's like more urban <laughs> urban legend in my name than anything. <laughs> you know, like people are like awaiting like you know this big story or whatever. It's really like you know like most things come about. Um, I was working at uh, it's a real short story. Um, I was working at Eastern Mount Sports in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, much like a bike shop, I feel like those, you know, kind of outdoor communities, we had a great camaraderie and wonderful people. And, uh, and, um, we all, we had this one guy that worked with us, his name was Ben and he just gave nicknames to everybody, you know, okay. and we had, yeah, we had that like, guy. yeah, he's that guy. And we had a, we had a manager who was kind of like a surfer looking guy named Chris and his name, his nickname was Flip McCormick. <laughs> and, um, we had another guy named Chaz Umberdeen and we had just like these funny yeah. nicknames, you know, but when you looked at the person, you're like, oh yeah. Like that's <laughs> like, who you know? are. Yeah. Yeah. And then I said to Ben one day, I'm like, Hey Ben, what's up, man? Like, I don't have a nickname. And then he's like, oh, he's like, yeah, 
I've been thinking about you. And then, you know, he's like, just, just wait, it'll come to me. And then one night after work, you know, we were at the local, you know, the local watering hole that we would go to after work. And then he's like, he's just ta- Ben was just talking about something. He goes, yeah. And then he's like, then we got like Roberta Spokes over here. And then so Roberta Spokes, and then it got shortened to Robbie Spokes. And then, you know, when the manager would print our schedules, it would have everybody's nickname. Uh-huh. You know, it'd say Robbie Spokes or say Spokes. Then when I moved to Colorado, at the time when I moved here in 2011, there was actually three Stephanies um, that were all kind of in my circle. And one of my friends, my friend Tracy said, hey, she's like, we all like ride together and there's three of you. Like, does somebody have like a nickname so we know who like, you know, we're talking about? And I said, well, I kind of have a nickname. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you imported it. Yeah, Yeah. I did. I brought it to Colorado with me. And I said, yeah, they call me Robbie Spokes in Pennsylvania. And then it just stuck. And then... And then it, it, it kind of had different iterations over the years. You know, some people call me Spokes. Some people call me, Daniel Berg calls me R Spokes. And uh, and then um, Sharon, our, our late friend, would call mm-hmm. me Robbie all the time. Uh. So, yeah, everybody had like a different like version of it. And then there was even this theory at Criterium that um, my friend Chris was like, you know, you're kind of like in Robbie Spokes mode right now. And there was like (laughs) this like... Oh, so then it becomes the alternate ego. It becomes kind of the like the fun, you know, kind of lively personality, you know, versus like, you know, just regular boring Stephanie. Oh, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. So they're really the same person. Well, the funniest thing though was one time I ran into somebody who I'm now now pretty close friends with at the time. We didn't know each other real well. She ran into me. She said, hey, you know, how's it going? Like, she's like, hey, you She's like, she's like, I said, oh, you know, I'm working at Criterium now. And she goes, do you work with Robbie Spokes? <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, how do I answer? I said, oh, I am Robbie Spokes. And she goes, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. you're the one. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like, it was like Robbie Spokes had become famous than the actual, than, than me, you know? Yeah, the legend so, yeah. grows. The legend yeah. lives. So I guess, I guess so. I don't know. Well, it's a very fitting name. <laughs> well, either way, Stephanie, Robbie. Thank you Our so much. Our spokes. <laughs> or just spokes. <laughs> spokes. Thank you so much, uh, not only for taking the time to be with us on the show, but for everything that you shared today about uh, the path that you have walked and some really sage words of advice for the rest of us, um, not only as we walk through challenges in life, but as we see those around us doing the same. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure to be here. And I really, um, in all in all honesty, I love talking about my life in cycling. I've, as I mentioned, been very fortunate. I also um, hope that, you know, there's some people listening out there that benefit from, you know, some of the things I shared about my own recovery from mental health. And ultimately, what I want people to realize is that you can build a life, you know, outside of outside of um, your struggles and outside of your challenges, or I should say, maybe in, you know, coinciding with those and build a life, you know, um, you know, with along, along with those challenges and ultimately build a life, you know, um, that's worth living and that you have, that you find joy in. That's awesome. Well, I, I want to add as well that you do coach and if you're, if you're looking for more people, what's a good way for them to get in contact. Sure. I'm actually, um, I, I do occasionally, you know, for a number of years, I coached with Allison, Allison Dunlap and I did some of my own private coaching. Um, I certainly take on, you know, um, people just one-on-one nowadays, but I've actually stepped back like quite a bit from, you know, coaching, but if someone wants to reach out to me, certainly do so. Um, you can reach me at, um, our spokes coaching 
um, at gmail.com. All right. <laughs> I know, there right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you can reach out to me or even just to say hi, or even quite honestly, if you want to share anything, um, that you, that, you know, resonated with you today and just want a listening ear, um, I'm here for that as well. Great. We'll have that in the show notes and thank you again so much. It's a true privilege. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you want to know more about stand up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.